Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. People are naturally wired to connect with each other, but in today's workplace, we stare at our phones, hide behind PowerPoint slides, and accumulate followers instead of relationships. Sadly, it seems we've forgotten how, when, and why to connect with people. But have no fear. The doctor is in the house this week on Financially Speaking as we welcome Dr. Melanie Katzman, a psychologist who's taught at Will Cornell here in New York City, the University of London, and in her spare time, I guess, was a senior fellow at the Wharton School of Leadership and Change Management. And there's more in her bio, but we're just going to start with those. In fact, sometimes she's a, well, today she's a business psychologist and every office should have one. And as a financial advisor for 32 years, I know that <laughs> that's very true. She's an advisor and consultant to the world's top public and private companies, government agencies, and nonprofits. Quite the resume, but we have her here with us today to learn some practical tips for building trusting and better relationships at work. She has a new book out, available everywhere, and we will link it up, of course, called Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. Welcome to Financially Speaking, Dr. Katzman. Thanks so much for having me, Mitch. It's my pleasure. So we always like to start our show out understanding people's journeys in life and see what has led you to this wonderful book we're going to examine today. Thanks for asking. So my grandparents were Russian immigrants. My parents didn't go to college. They actually went to trade high schools. And yet my sister and I were raised in a house in which education was very important and there was always money for books. So I kind of grew up really respecting the power of the written word. My mom was a stay-at-home mom who had copious amounts of time for everybody and their story. So in a lot of ways, she was a natural psychologist. And my dad was an entrepreneur. So he made a business that became ultimately successful in diamonds. So today, I work at the intersection of psychology and entrepreneurship. And I think a lot of it came from the kitchen table, you know, hanging out with my parents and understanding that when you're in business, like my dad, you're trying to figure out what makes people tick. Mm -hmm. And when you are a good listener, like my mom, you're understanding what makes people tick. No, yeah, that's true. Listening is everything. So also, before we get into the book and the wisdom that you're putting out there, I'd like to ask you a question I've asked a number of folks that have similar careers. Define your version of happiness. I always like hearing what people's take is on that. I think I'm in my happy place. I'm with my friends, my family. We are comfortable, relaxed, and we're not feeling pressured. And I think in a lot of ways, that to me is what happiness is about. It's about kind of the abundance of closeness and connection, if I can say, Mm -hmm. um, and the lack of harriedness. So that there's just a beauty in being able to kind of sink into the enjoyment of good relationships. That's a great, that's terrific. So, so what drove you to write this book, Connect First? Uh, maybe tie in your background a bit to what led you down this path. Sure. So as you were saying, when you're talking about my mm-hmm. resume, I have a PhD in psychology. I'm a clinical psychologist and I have a private practice. So people come to see me for therapy and I've been doing that throughout my entire career, but I'm also a business advisor. So in the some, same day, often I will be seeing people for um, their clinical sessions and then I'm running 
across town and going to conference rooms and I'm helping to facilitate meetings between executives and their boards or between departments that are having conflict or individuals who need coaching. And one of the things that I saw was that no matter where I was working, no matter what capacity I was in, people were finding joy at work for the same reasons and people equally were feeling dismayed by their position in the office for things that could be easily altered but weren't being paid attention to. Hmm. So what's the 52 about? Is there, <laughs> is, is there a message there with that absolutely, number? Absolutely. I knew absolutely. there had to be. There's no accident. Okay. The book is very deliberate. So there's 52. Let me tell you what my guess is. Go for it. Well, I only know this from writing so many bar and bat mitzvah checks when, when my kids were getting bar and bat mitzvah and 52 was, you know part of 1830. Actually, wait, 36 times two is 72. There goes my All right, math. All right. Financial advising there doesn't you require go. Well, math. Okay. There you go. We don't really need math. We have computers. Anyway, it wasn't that. Okay. All right. Because as you were saying, they're saying, wow, interesting. That would maybe it's extra yeah, luck. Yeah. No. So 52, there's 52 weeks in a year. There are 52 cards in a deck. And so I thought that the best way to help people at work was to make it simple. Now, simple doesn't always mean that it's easy or that people are doing it, but I wanted to take all the excuses away that people have for why they're not being their best selves in the office. And so with 52 simple ways, if you wanted, you could use the book as a year-long journey to self-improvement. And every week, you could do something. I've just seen on social media that there are people starting Connect First reading groups where people are going to be doing a an action a week. So that's the kind of thing that I was hoping for, that people would either for themselves or in their companies or in their communities, create campaigns that would last a year. Also, I found that in the training programs that I do for people, if you have the tangible cards in hand, people can kind of share them around and physically touch the concepts and then use them to make decisions right now about what they're going to do differently. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I clearly get the 52. <laughs> so for most people, me included, being appreciated at work has always been a big deal throughout yeah. my current career. I mean, I think we're all human. I don't need a parade and clowns, but at times I wouldn't mind it. But we all want to be respected and given the chance to be the human being we really are. I am lucky to be in one of those glory day periods, and there's my Springsteen reference for the week, folks. But we all struggle at times. So the question is, how do you break through during those dark days? Now, this may seem counterintuitive, but what, when you're hungry for praise, give it to others. Hmm. So I see you doing something that is making our life at the office better or you've delivered a good result for a client. Say something. If you see something, say something. When you become a positive force, people are positively responding to you. They're going to be more generous and more likely to give you praise. So even though you're having those dark days and what you think you want to do is curl up and hide – Get up, make eye contact with someone, tell them what they're doing well, and probably you're going to get a compliment back. No, no, it's obviously giving, and, and the joy of giving is it never ends. And taking action. Right, and taking some action with it. So I think my audience would be interested in hearing some simple techniques for connecting to someone on a human level when you meet. So the book is organized into seven different sections, and the first section is called Give Respect. And... The ideas that I'm about to tell you are going to seem so incredibly obvious, and yet we forget to do it. So the first is smile. When you walk into a room, when you see somebody, smile. We are biologically wired to connect, and smiling ignites connection. I smile at you, you smile back. Right. And yet we walk into the office, our face is in our phone, or our head is in the clouds, and we don't smile. So start with a smile. 
please and thank you, mm-hmm. appreciation, right. jobs well done, invite people in, call them by their name, introduce people to one another. These may seem incredibly obvious, but I hope what I'm doing is reminding people that sometimes what's obvious isn't always what's happening. What are some ways, though, people could kind of make over their daily bad habits to connect better at work? So, you know, one of the things that I find is that many people are working electronically with each other. So you may be talking, so to speak, online with the same people every single day, but nobody is saying good morning. If I walk into the office, I'm going to tell people, say good morning to your neighbor. Why don't you say good morning? In our office, everybody says good morning. And now the whole Connect First team says good morning in their first email. It kind of says, all right, we're ready for action. The end of the day, we say good night. Because the other thing it does is it sets a boundary. When you can't see your colleagues face to face, it's hard to know. Did the day start? Did the day end? Mm-hmm. You know, we always feel like we're on. And I'm a big believer in being present. So when you're in, be in it. And when you're out, allow yourself to walk away. Uh, which reminds me a lot of Gretchen Rubin's first book about happiness. She talked about starting your day doing something where you feel an accomplishment. And it could be a little thing like making your bed. And and I actually, for the last, since I read that book, probably for four or five years, I will not leave the house until I make the bed. Obviously, my wife's very, really liked that I read that book and has suggested something so about dishes. You. But, you know, yeah, yeah. Dish, yeah, dishes yeah. are good too. Yeah. Right. Spread happiness, do dishes. But here's another one. Thank somebody every day. So you're waiting for your coffee in the morning, you're standing online for your car, you are stopped at a red light, send a thank you. It's got to be somebody who the day before did something that you appreciate. And you will make someone's day, but you'll also make yours feel better. It's it's very true. And I, I that's something I do a lot of, and, and I'm so appreciative about things that happen that are that are very special and being involved in that I've had in, in my own separate little Springsteen life, as a lot of the folks know. And I, I make sure I thank people just incredibly as much as possible. And it doesn't have to be about something big. You know, no. it could also be something just like, you know what? It was great that you gave me that glass of water when I was getting up to speak and right. my mouth was parched. Like right. it was just an act of human kindness. But people like to be, as you said, acknowledged and also reminder bosses like to be acknowledged. Right. So you know, we're always thinking that our boss isn't noticing what we're doing. Well, guess what? I work with a lot of bosses who wish that people would notice what they've been doing. Right. And, right. and that, you know, this is not a political show and we don't go there, but the biggest problem in, in my opinion, and if I have to put it in one word, is that we just don't have kindness in this country at this point. No, and it's, and, and kindness, it, we'll just say kindness and leadership. We'll leave it at that. Okay. And, and in the absence of kindness, it's very easy for things to get divisive. Right. So if you want to have good decision making and you want to have the right people in the room feeling free to speak, then you want to establish respect, which leads to trust. Mm, so true. So the F word. Yeah. Fear. Mm-hmm. In the business world, holds people back from their greatest potential. So let's talk a little bit about maybe some tips that you have to to battle those fear demons. A lot of the book actually is about fighting fear, right? Because we become so afraid of our competitor, of the people we can see and the people we don't see. And as a result, we close our minds, we close our doors, and it's just the opposite of what we need. So at the moments that we're most afraid is typically the time we need to open up. So I suggest to people that some of the best ways of fighting fear is to actively bring other people in. Hmm. 
And when you bring them in to create a comfortable environment for people to have the conversations that can oftentimes be very difficult or conflictual. When I was writing the book, my publisher said to me, in the section on fighting fear, you have a chapter on be a good host. And I said, absolutely. When someone comes to your office, you want them to feel comfortable. Show them where the restroom is, hang their coat, right. see if they need a drink, give them the Wi-Fi passcode. Mm -hmm. Do they need a pen and paper? Right. Introduce them to the people around. Make sure they're at ease. The conversation may be difficult, but you'll have a better one if people aren't distracted by their basic needs that aren't being paid attention to. So one of the ways of fighting fear, bring people in. One of the ways you make people comfortable when you bring them in is be attentive and be respectful of them as another individual. Don't just jump into business right away. Make a little small talk, establish the human bond, build a bridge through some commonality, and then have the conversation. Maybe Roosevelt should have added that to the only thing we have to fear is fear itself yeah, and just, just go a little further. Yeah. It was a good start. <laughs> but it was a good start. So what about burnout, though? Because mm. in, in, in today's world, I feel like in many of the offices that you know I see and that I've experienced you know, of clients and, and friends in my own time, we're becoming more robotic than human. Yeah. And not because of technology. I'm just talking we are becoming robotic. Yeah, and I think that we become so goal-driven that we forget about the process. You know, the concept of joy at work is really about pausing, having a little bit of punctuation in your day. And when I say a little, taking a few seconds, a minute, to take joy and pleasure in what's been accomplished. And that can be modeled by people at any level of the organization. But it does come to having clear expectations. What are people meant to do? When does the day begin and end? And pausing to say, job well done. That helps, right? And we burn ourselves out when we are also preoccupied with negative thoughts. And we could talk more about that because there are things that give us energy and there are things that deplete energy. And oftentimes we work ourselves into such a state that we are exhausting and burning ourselves out. And it has nothing to do with the job. It has a lot to do with our inner dialogue. That's so true. What kind of tips can you give people to, to kind of deal with that? I mean, if, or, or, if, or if you work in an office and you're a leader and you just see that happening, how can you help people? Well, one of the things that often happens is that people have conversations with themselves rather than with each other. They build up a case and then they look for data to justify their false hypothesis. Right. So I always encourage leaders to try to give information. I call information the virtual volume. Mm -hmm. When people are stressed and nervous, what helps them calm down is information. Knowledge is power. It's right. also a powerful calming agent. Hmm. So all of this you know, sounds wonderful, but in pretty much every corner of the business world, no matter the sector, at some point you must have the leadership like we talked about to yeah. buy into this. And the book Radical Candor by Kim Scott, when I read it, I, I remember how much it, it taught me a great deal about management through kindness. There's mm -hmm. that word again. Yep. That was clear, specific, and sincere. So any tips on making that happen or what you tell CEO, HR, leaders, you know, because you've got both perspectives. You've got the employees that are struggling because yep. the, the leaders aren't, haven't been trained. And then you've got the leaders that haven't been trained and, and not really handling their So one of employees. the reasons I wrote this book was to have material that everybody could read at any level of the organization and to take away any of the excuses that people may have about not being human at work. And so one of the things I would say to HR and CEOs is 
It's not about a program. It's not about a poster. It's not about an offsite where we gather people together and talk about our values. It's about living and being the person you want everyone to be. And so we all have the responsibility and the opportunity to be better at work. And it's not about the big things. It's about the small things. It's about the inclusion of the voice that often isn't heard. It's about seeing and recognizing everybody, even if they aren't the most powerful person in the room. You know, it's about recognizing that your platform, wherever you are in the corporate hierarchy, is still an opportunity to be able to drive a positive impact. So that's what I start to talk to people about. Like, let's not get overwhelmed and scared at the idea of being an impassioned workplace or having meaning. This is not a big campaign. This is about what happens every day. So... There's a lot of offices that I've been in in the last few years that are that are very unique. It's of different different kind of workplaces. In fact, I was in one office in San Francisco where people could bring their dogs to work, mm -hmm. and I'm a dog person, so I actually loved it. and And I was giving a talk, and I had dogs all you know near me, and didn't bother me at all. And then I've been in you know others where it was just obviously not a good idea. Mm -hmm. But there's just you know that you see the modern office today. Just the setup of it is just very sparse, maybe almost European. It's, mm. it's a totally different look. Does this, this how an office is structured, so set up? It's a great yeah. question, Mitch, because one of the things I think that has happened in some of the offices that have open plans is that it's meant to encourage collaboration, but for some people, they can't focus. Right. And so what ends up happening is that people are putting headsets on right. while they're sitting at their desk and they're looking into their computer and they have a headset on. So mm -hmm. even though they're in this open plan, what they're really communicating is, don't bother me. And they're tuning out what's happening around them. So it's the ironic twist right. that open offices can sometimes actually create these little islands. Of I will tell you, I was in one the other day and there are, I don't know, maybe 500 people in this office. And I would say 95% of them were plugged in. Yeah. Right. So that's one example. Yeah. The other is hot desking or hoteling right. where you just kind of go and take a desk. Right. Well, my daughter-in-law just started a new job mm -hmm. and she was told this is where you can sit. And there were a whole bunch of desks and every day it's different. Yeah. And she didn't know what the corporate rules were, the mm -hmm. unwritten rules right. about who sits where, am I taking someone's place? So rather than feeling comfortable and excited about a new job, there's an extra layer of anxiety about who am I offending unintentionally? And I think this question of how do I belong and what are the rules is something we all are always asking ourselves. And in these open plans, sometimes in the absence of guidelines, we feel more destabilized than relaxed, even though it looks kind of bright and shiny and cool. Mm -hmm. So forget about we work the company itself and, and all of their issues, but what do you think of that concept? of people working in spaces like that, you know. I think the space yeah. is still about the people and what right. you do, right? And how do you help people find one another? So oftentimes people work together, whether it's in a WeWork or it's in a more standard office, but they know nothing about each other. And so this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to suddenly go to your, you know, your collaborative working environment and talk to everybody about your innermost secret. But most people respond pretty positively for some small prompts that allow you to just know who's this person that's in the room. Right. It's very important. So I don't know if you watch the HBO show <laughs> Succession. I happen to love it. And the second season just concluded. And the series shows a very highly dysfunctional family business on full display with a Don Corleone type father. 
And this, albeit fiction, is a great example of a family business dynamic that really needs some mm-hmm. coaching. Do you, I know, you, actually, I know you do work with family businesses. So I was curious if, if you do watch the show, what would you tell Logan Roy? Or if, if not, <laughs> you know, what, what types of tips do you give the family businesses? So I do work with family businesses mm-hmm. and, you know, they're different because you're related and you also are more tied to legacy. So in a lot of the big corporations I work in, people are concerned that they're going to lose their job. Now, you can lose your job in a family business, but the family still has the same name attached to it. So there's much more attentiveness to actually what is it that we stand for. Now, what happens is that can get diluted because people aren't clear about who's in charge. They don't plan for succession as the show shows Mm -hmm. because there's a denial often that anybody's going to go anywhere. So what I do with families is often pose the questions that nobody is really asking directly, but everybody is asking to themselves. And I encourage families to keep business during business hours. It becomes extremely messy when your dining room table becomes the boardroom. Right. Nobody ever gets to turn off. You get to play out, and this happens all the time. People are playing out their sibling rivalries mm-hmm. you know, in the office when what has to happen at that moment is more professionalism, and you still want to fight about who's getting mommy's attention? Great. Do right. it in the weekend at the pool or, you know, at, at the restaurant, but it doesn't belong in the office. Yeah, so and that's exactly the problem. One of the problems with this particular family, and in, in that yeah, in, and actually, the show. show has given a lot of my clients names for characters who they see <laughs> as family members. They go, you know, so and so is acting like this, and so and so is acting like that. That's Shiv, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's it's very true. And I, I was fortunate. I did. I worked with my dad, and you know, wasn't a family. Well, it was a family business within a business when when we were at Merrill Lynch, and it was very interesting because my my dad when. I joined him after starting on my own for a few years. Um, my mom every day would give him a little sticky note to ask me about something. I love it. And finally, you know, after a while, I, I, I said to my mom, um, who will appreciate this, she's 92 and she remembers this very well. Um, I said, you know what, mom, just call me at night. It's fine. Yeah. Because first of all, it's not fair to dad. Because you're, you know, why does he have yep. to deal with that? And whatever it is, it can wait, or you can, or call me. You know, you know, it's so true. And, it's so and, true. and the things back then, when for, really before I had kids, were very different than you know the things we talk about today. Obviously, yeah. And actually, some people in their family businesses, I don't know whether you called your dad dad when you were with clients, but I see it this was thing. it was a very interesting thing, and I I just. We talked about it, and my my father said, "You can call me Jack. You can call me." I I called him Dad. It's just what I. Different people yeah. have because di- for some yeah. people they use a different name. It's almost right. like speaking a different language, and it is a trigger to say, "In this moment, we are professionals together." And then at home, your dad, and in the office, your Jack. Yeah, that's a good. And, and I thought I remember thinking about that a lot, and I didn't want. There was one client I was 27 at the time and referred to me as Sonny in front of me. Mm. And and I made a, a Godfather-related joke. That was the only way I could kind of get out of that. Yeah. But that's a, that's a really good thing. I don't think there's a right or wrong. It's really no, what works for the relationship. No, I don't think it's right or wrong. I think one thing though, about yeah. family businesses is families are very emotional places. So right. family businesses- Deeply emotional. Deeply emotional, positively and sometimes destructively. Mm-hmm. And so family businesses know business is about emotion. Right. And that's one of the things that I think is sometimes 
a differentiator than if you're working for a large multinational, which wants to pretend that emotions don't belong in the workplace, when of course they do, right? But family businesses, you can't avoid it because they're just bubbling up yeah. right there. Reminds another family business show in England in the 1920s, Peaky Blinders, which are, kind of reminds me a little bit of that. So you, you talked about this a little bit before, but th- these words are just so important. And I, I wanted to you know just jump on it again because they've kind of been words that for me, I guess have been cornerstones in my personal and professional life and smile, please. And thank you. And, and you, you, you know, you really talk about that in connection intended pun intended on that, but in connection with the book. And we talked about the smiling first, let's, let's talk a little bit more about please. So there's an attitude that some people have, which is it's their job. I don't have to say, please do this because that's why you're here. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be true, but let's at least except that people want to feel that they have some volition. If you ask me, please, I have the opportunity to decide whether or not I want to do it. Well, it's my job. I probably have to do it. But the please indicates that somebody is making an effort for you. And it makes a difference, right? We, it, it's the thing that personalizes it. I know that somebody's on the other end of this instruction, right? Similarly, thank you is a recognition that somebody has done something, right? And as you mentioned early on, we all crave praise and recognition. And a thank you is two simple words, and it makes people feel seen, appreciated. It changes your entire day. The whole day. I right? mean, it, I, I know for me personally, those that that's probably the most, the nicest thing anyone can say to me any day is thank you. Because it just, it's an acknowledgement that you, you put effort into something or you worked on it or you helped them in some way or whatever little thing. I went to an event last night with uh, a celebrity I know and the celebrity's wife, I'll just put it there. And the celebrity's wife was so appreciative that I showed up. It was not the biggest event, but it was a fundraising event and I wanted to support this particular woman. And the thank you I got from her, just it just meant the world to me. Yeah. I mean, it was natural I was gonna go. This person has done some really wonderful things in my own family. So, but just that little thank you meant right. everything. And you mentioned your mom's sticky notes. Yeah. So one of the things that I often suggest mm-hmm. to people is put a thank you on a sticky note and stick it on somebody's desk. Mm-hmm. Because it sticks around, you know, it's a tangible evidence that somebody was watching what I was doing, and they took the two seconds to thank me in a way that I can reference back and just kind of make will make you smile and allow you to know that yep, there's a reason for what for what I'm doing. Yeah, and and listen, my mom still writes thank you notes, and she. I mean, she used to keep score within the family who did and who didn't keep thank you notes. But to her, that's still the way to do it. So you know what? I still suggest to people that they have a Ziploc bag with a couple of note cards and a pen and stamps. It's Mm -hmm. very Mm old-fashioned. But I'll tell you, when you get a note, it's powerful. It's almost like getting a phone call. You know, you know it, 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 in many ways, we don't answer our home phones anymore, no. okay? And 90% of the mail is junk. Yeah. So I, I know it's, I know personally, I get excited when I actually see something in the mail that is handwritten, that is personal. Right, you said you don't so necessarily rare. want to parade in balloons, but right. you know what? Actually, every once in a while, getting a handwritten thank you note, is like having a parade in balloons. It really is. It, it's so true. So how do people find joy when so much business is performance-based these days? Well, the people who are contributing to that performance are humans. This is what we're saying. These are fellow people. Our colleagues and our collaborators are all working towards a goal. So when people hear that I'm a psychologist, they're afraid, oh, the feelings doctor is here and it's all going to be very light and soft. And I'm like, "Mm, you know what? Emotions are the hard realities 
that if you want to get stuff done, if you want to drive to that performance, you need to recognize the emotions that go behind that. And one of the emotions is joy in a job well done. And I think we move from accomplishment to accomplishment without pausing. I've talked you know, before about having some punctuation to just pause and say, wait, what did we accomplish today? Yeah, it was performance-based. There's a metric. Mm-hmm. But behind that metric is something that you did and so, something that people did together. So I think one of the ways that we have joy is to be able to allow ourselves kind of the time to be able to say, we did it, we did it together. This is how each of us contributed. How was the experience of writing the book for you? It was fabulous. I really was. I mean, I'm somebody who you might tell is somewhat Mm -hmm. extroverted. I love people. I'm out there doing things. But I wrote the book on Thursdays. I had this conversation in my office about how I wanted to apply for a genius grant, if only I could be a genius. And Mm -hmm. then I could get some time off and to really focus. And Jerry, my the head of Casman Consulting's admin said, why don't we give you the Casman Consulting grant? I said, what's that? She goes, well, every year we do a capital improvement. Mm-hmm. We've d- changed our technology. We've done training. Why not we give you Thursdays to write? It was the greatest because I had time to read what others were writing, to think, to collect my thoughts. And it became my oxygen pocket in the week. Hmm. And so initially the writing was my private time. Right. And then I started to test Were you doing on, that writing in the office? I have a home office where okay, I was writing. Good. And I wouldn't take one phone call, not even a call, because once I had anything on my calendar, it broke my flow. Yeah. Every author that I've talked to, whether it's novels or, or business books like this, my, my Harlan Coben, who I know who's a, you know, writes a lot of novels, nothing interrupts him. Yeah. So that was, that was like my great kind of precious moments. But then I really do think of writing as a team sport. And so once I had gotten my ideas together, I was sending it out to different focus groups that I had created of people that I knew that were in different kinds of jobs in different parts of the world, different ages, different backgrounds. And I started getting feedback. And then I actually held a focus group one morning when the ideas were further developed. And again, was people who were very different perspectives and backgrounds. So I continually refined my ideas in a way that made me feel as if I had, not only feel, I did have a whole team behind me of people who are helping me articulate the very things that I wanted to get out in the public. And then of course, putting together a team agent and PR and publishing. Sure. We've been very careful to pick people who believe in the principles of the book and that we actually act them. So we're not just writing about it, we're doing it. And so the team has been extremely respectful of one another. I think even though we're not all co-located, we are smooth in our communication, checking to make sure people know what they're doing and who's passing off to who. And so it's been a terrific experience. And of course, now with the launch of the book, hearing what people are saying when they're reading it and people that know me are sending pictures of themselves with the book, which is absolutely great. I'm loving it. And it's great to hear that people are picking up things that they could do immediately. That's why I wrote the book. So kind of hearing that people are reading it and taking action is so gratifying. And as we are approaching the giving season, this, you know, certainly is a, is a great gift because there's a lot of people that, you know, really could use this kind of help. So another concern is that we, we live in a world today of instant communication and of course, gratification at, at work technologies like Slack and all, all forms of social media, they bring no real human connection. Mm. So as we end this interview, I'd like 
you to tell us a little bit about how the book and your work will change all that by humanizing every work experience. I don't believe that technology has to be the demon. It can actually be the tool. So if you are with people on a conference call, you can say, hey, who's on this call? What do you see out the, your window? Just something like that. Mm -hmm. So you hear everybody's voice and then you locate them in space. So you understand just a, a little bit about who's on the call, right? So we're using technology to be together and actually to see together. I have people in my coaching practice who take pictures when they're out at different offices around the world and they post pictures with the receptionist, with the janitor, with the person who's serving lunch and puts them up on their social media feed. Mm -hmm. And suddenly somebody feels like they're a celebrity. Right. So we can use our technology to be very human and to be connected in a really positive way. So I hope that the book will not only remind us of the things we do face to face, but that even if we are using uh, some sort of device for our communication, that if we're attentive to the fact that an emoji that has a smiley face does not clear conflict, you have to sometimes pick up the phone or write a more detailed email, we can connect better and more honestly and earnestly with hopefully many of the tips that I've included in the book. It leads me to a great quote that uh, a friend and a client and, and, and probably one of the most active people in the world on social media, Gary Vaynerchuk said at a, at a speech that uh, we did together years ago in telling people in a world of Jetson, you gotta still go Flintstone. I love it, I love it. And I may I have think, to repeat that. Uh, well, I, please do. I, I, it's really one of my favorite quotes and, and I think about it all the time because at the end of the day, in, in what I do, it's, it's all about human interaction. Uh, in fact, I've done every one of these interviews in person. Mm. Uh, I've had opportunities to have some amazing guests by phone, but it, I, I've chosen, at least for now, that it just, it just to me, this makes more sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. You still have to do that. So the book, folks, is Connect First, 52, and now we know why. There's 52 weeks in the year. 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meeting, and Joy at Work. It's by Melanie Katzman, PhD, and we will link it up uh, to Amazon or to any, any of the links that are out there, um, but you can certainly just go and order it. Um, I think it's clearly one of the best business books of 2019, and it's certainly, I think, the only business book by someone who went to summer camp with Howard Stern. I'm not sure about that, but I, I, I have to fact check that, but just, just a guess. Anyway, thank you so much for your time, Melanie, and, and all of your good work, and everyone should know how you have this unique ability to work across cultures and empower so many around the world. We haven't even gotten to, to that whole aspect of, of, of your work. So that's our show this week. Thank you so much for joining us and following the podcast on Spotify, and by the time this airs, Apple Podcasts as well. And remember... When saving for your well-connected future, pay yourself first. Have a great week.